We're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 4 uh, this morning as we're now focusing on the life and the ministry of Elisha. Now, last week we kind of looked at a macro perspective, big picture perspective of what was going on in Israel as a whole, right, as her kings uh, continued to lead her in unfaithfulness, which led to wars, which led to curses, and, and, and the wrath of God coming down upon her. In the midst of this, we need to ask the question, what's going on on the local level? What's going on with the regular old people of Israel? What's going on with the faithful people of Israel? And this morning, we're going to see this through the lens of two women. And we're going to see it across three scenes. We're going to read kind of each scene separately, each one of which contains a miracle. And we'll see how the faithful are faring in Israel. And, and underlying this, I, I hope we'll kind of see a question and hopefully an answer to the question. And the question, amidst everything that's going on in national Israel, the question is this, does God really care for his people? Does God really care? Let's read the first part of the text, starting at verse 1, chapter 4. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me what you have in your house. And she said, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go outside. Borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Then go in, shut the door behind yourself and your sons, and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him. She shut the door behind herself and her sons, and as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. And when the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing, and she came, and she told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil, pay your debts, and you and your sons can live off the rest. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word today. Oh, would you teach us today about the way you have always and continue to care for all of your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Good men. As we begin in this text, we find a woman, this widow, who seems to be in an impossible situation, doesn't she? Maybe you've seen, it would be better if you'd read because the book's actually better, as is usually the case, um, but maybe you've seen Martian, and you, you have this guy, Mark Whitney, and what, what, what happens to him? But all the astronauts leave him on Mars. He's alone on Mars. Now, he's a very ingenious, he does all sorts of just incredible things, figuring all sorts of things out, but there's one thing that he can't do, Right? And that's get himself off of Mars and all the way back home. He needs a rescue. He needs others coming in. He's, he's in an impossible situation, right? I think we need to understand how impossible the situation the widow is in here as we approach her this morning. Her, her husband was one of the sons, we read in verse 1, sons of the prophets, right? He, he was one of those who ministered, evidently, alongside Elisha, probably Elijah as well, and this is not a good time in Israel to be a son of the prophet. It's not a good time to be doing this kind of ministry, okay? Things are not going to go well for you. And yet he soldiered on. He feared the Lord. And then he dies. And we read that what happens, but the creditor comes. And the creditor comes to take away her children and put them in slavery to pay for his debts. 
Now, it's at this moment, we, we might not naturally catch this, but it's this moment that we understand how far Israel's decayed on a national level. When Moses is preaching those final sermons to the Israelites uh, on the plains of Moab before they enter the promised land, what did he tell them? One of the things he told them, Deuteronomy 15, there, sh- there will be no poor among you, he says. Why does he say that? Because, of course, there's always poor and he goes on to say that. But the point is, that, that is the trajectory. That, that's how, how Israel is supposed to carry herself. There should not be poor. You're to take care of. And he puts in all sorts of structures to care for those who do not have, to care for the widows, to care for the orphans. And yet this widow is about to have her sons taken away. Things are not going well in Israel. This is not the way things are supposed to be. So what does she do? She does the only thing that she knows to do. She goes to Elisha. Now, in verse 7, uh, we actually see this title given to him and where he's called the man of God. And this is used some nine times in this chapter, okay, more than anywhere else in Scripture. And why? Because over and over, what is the author doing? He's pointing us to the fact of who Elisha is, how foundational he is, how important he is because he is God's man. And so she takes her need to the prophet, and by taking the need to the prophet, who's she taking it to? She's taking it to her, her great God. And Elisha says to her, well, what do you have? And she says, verse 2, nothing except a jar of oil. She says, I have nothing. I don't have anything. Now, we might be tempted to think, oh, well, but what she's really saying is, I have nothing. Oh, but I have this jar of oil. Maybe we can do something with this. No, there's, it's a little tiny jar of oil. It's nothing in the grand scheme of, of the position that she finds herself, she has nothing. She comes to Elijah with open hands. I got nothing. What are you going to do? How can my God help me? She meets her God in the midst of her weakness. And Elisha tells her to do something strange, verses 3 and 4, doesn't he? He says, go outside, borrow a bunch of vessels, then I want you to go in yourself, and I just want you to keep pouring. This is strange. It's a crazy task. But what does she do? She goes and she does precisely what the prophet has told her. And we see here her faith in her great God lived out as she follows what the prophet tells her to do. Even though it seems crazy, we see her obediently following. We see her, her faith on display, if we, you, you will, and we, we, we see that this faith that she has is no doubt genuine. And so she pours and she pours and she pours and she fills them all up. And then she comes, no doubt excitedly, to tell Elisha what's happened. And what does he say? Verse 7, go, sell the oil, pay your debts. You and your sons can live on the rest. What does God do for this widow? He provides. But he doesn't just provide, does he? He overprovides. He provides with abundance. He doesn't just provide enough so that her debts can be paid off. He provides that her and her sons can go on living. Now, we need to ask the question, why in the world does this find its way into Scripture? This is an insignificant woman, a widow. We don't even know her name. If you're writing a history of Israel, you don't include this story. Except, of course, for the fact that God, as he's written his history of Israel, has included it in his story, right? Why is that? It's because God cares for the, quote-unquote, little people. The, 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 in this case, 
for the widow. He cares for his people. If you're one of the first hearers of this, you're probably in exile. And as you're hearing the story, what are you hearing? God cares for his faithful people. He's here giving a sign to his people, not to say, and let's not get this wrong, not to say, oh, if you have enough faith, then your oil's gonna keep you filling up. That's not what it is, but to be a sign that yes, even when things are difficult, even when things seem impossible, your God cares for you. He cares for his people. And ultimately, that care comes in its greatest fruition when not in this life as we know, not in the accumulation of stuff here and now, but in that life to come, when the blessings will be greater than you and I could could ever imagine. Because even if we don't receive those blessings here right now, oh, the blessings to come are so much greater than the greatest king experiences. Do you know that? Do you know that truth? Jesus' brother puts it this way. Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world in faith and heir, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Do you hear that? If you're in Christ, the, the promise is not of some easy life, Not a promise of, you know, your bank account's going to keep automatically filling up. That's what we would like to have come out of the story, right? But a promise that amidst all that's going on in life, your God truly does care for you. And he has come into a far more impossible situation than the widow finds herself. And he's accomplished far more than he does when he wipes out her debt through the giving of this oil, right? He came into our situation where you and I were dead in our sins. And he has given us new life, rescuing us from the depravity of those sins and erasing erasing that debt. And we now can what? We can look forward longingly to this eternal kingdom with him, that we are heirs of the kingdom. We are given so much. We are blessed so much. And what's the greatest blessing of it all? That we get him that right now we are found in him, united to him. And one day we will see him face to face. We will be with him in his presence and we will get to enjoy being with him. It's not about the stuff that we accumulate. It's not about the filling up with oil. It's about that we ultimately get him. God lavishly loves his people, doesn't he? And this lavish love of of his people does not stop with this story of this seemingly insignificant widow. It goes on to to talk about, as we're going to see now, a faithful, rich woman who is barren. And again, it shouldn't surprise us that we never learn her name either. One day, Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food so whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, behold, now I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room for him on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. One day he came there and he turned into the chamber and he rested and he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him and he said, say now to her, see, 
You have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on behalf of you to the king or to the commander of the army? And she answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, what is to be done for her? And Gehazi says, well, she has no son and her husband is old. He said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway and he said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived. She bore a son about that time, the following spring, as Elisha said to her. Here we have this wealthy woman. What does she do with the holy man of God? She shows great hospitality to him, doesn't she? Providing him meals whenever he would come by. And then, if that's not enough, I mean, can you imagine this? He, you know, he's relatively by. So I know what we're going to do. We're going to put an addition on the house so that whenever he comes, he's going to have a comfortable place to stay. That's what this faithful woman does. Now, Elisha wants to know, well, what, what, can, what can I do for her? You've taken all this trouble for us, he says. What, what can we do for you? You know, can I speak to the king on your behalf or the commander of the army? And you, you're probably thinking like, what, what? Remember, this is a rich, wealthy woman. He's offering to connect her with other people of great power and prominence. And what does she say? Verse 13, I dwell among my own people. She's content with where the Lord has her. She doesn't need to know all those other famous people. She's fine right there in her own community. And so he says, well, what, what are we going to do for her? And Gehazi answered, well, she has no son, and her husband is old. And now that's a big deal. There's no heir, right? So what does he say? Verse 16, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she says, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. She hasn't asked for it right? We, we don't see her like dwelling on this. We, we don't read that in the text, but the moment it's offered, you can just sense her excitement that she's finally going to have that long-awaited son. And the woman conceived, and she bore a son. You know what's astounding about this story? If you think about it, there's a lot of barren women's stories in Scripture, aren't there? This one is unique, very unique. All the other one are pivotal people, right? They're people like John the Baptist or Samson, these pivotal characters or these, or these individuals who find their way into the lineage of Jesus. But not here. We don't even know her name. We don't even know this son's name. We don't even hear the son's name. No, there's no need for this special birth like there is in the other cases. And yet here is another incredible picture of how God cares for his people, is concerned for them, is concerned for their needs, loves them so incredibly, even people who we don't know their names. Now, of course, this story with this woman isn't done yet. We read on, verse 18. When the child had grown... He went out one day to his father among the reapers, and he said to his father, oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. 
She went up and she laid him on the bed of the man of God and she shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon or Sabbath. And she said, all is well. She saddled the donkey. She said to her servant, urge the animal on, do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and she came to the man of God at Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi's servant, look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once and meet her. Say, is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, all is well. When she came to the mountain of the man of God, she caught a hold of his feet and Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, leave her alone for she is in bitter distress. And the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, did I ask for my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, tie up your garment, take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. If anyone greets you, do not reply and lay my staff on the face of the child. The mother of the child said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he rose, and he followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sign of life. Therefore, he returned to meet him and told him, the child is not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in, and he shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands, and he stretched himself out upon him. The flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again, walked once back and forth in the house, and he went up and he stretched himself upon him, and the child sneezed seven times. The child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her. When she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came, she fell at his feet, bowing to the ground, then she picked up her son, and she went on. The story of great blessing turns into one of death. Isn't that so often the case, it seems? Just this week, some of you know this, some of you, you don't. It's been a rough week for our denomination, PCA. We've lost three stalwarts of the faith. Names some of you may not even recognize. Steve Smallman, who had a great ministry in the Philadelphia area in D.C. Harry Reeder, ministry in Charlotte and then at Briarwood in Birmingham. And Timothy Keller, who probably the more notable of the names that you would recognize. Who's written many books, started a church in Manhattan that grew incredibly. So I was thinking about that and the story. I'm reminded of how death is just always hanging over us, isn't it? It's almost as though it's there taunting us, taunting you and I and asking, do you really believe? These deaths, particularly Tim Keller's, hit me hard on Friday as I was prepping this sermon Not that I knew him directly. I took one class with him in seminary. He would have no clue who I was. But his ministry has been incredibly impactful in my life. I think there was a great summary by the the, the chancellor of the seminary I I went to said this. 
about Tim. Tim in the PCA was a little bit like Gandalf in the Shire. We think he's just we think he's just a guy that does fireworks at birthday parties when he's actually out there in the world slaying dragons and taking on evil wizards. I say this not this morning to make much of Tim Keller. But because as I was thinking about that, doesn't that sound in somewhat so much like Elisha as we see in our passage this morning and Elijah who we saw previously? In our passages, we see these fireworks, right? These miracles. And they're so astounding. And they're, they're great, but we need to be reminded that these fireworks are about something so much greater. God's prophets are really going about slaying dragons and defeating evil wizards, if you will. So that even these seemingly small miracles to people who we don't even know the name of, they point us to something so much greater. And I hope as we continue, we'll really see that and really grasp that this morning. So the Shunammite woman, her son, dies, still young enough that he can be placed in her lap. What does she do? How does she respond? What does she do as death is taunting her in the face? She begins to act swiftly and purposely, and in ways that are kind of unexpected to us. Verse 21, she goes and she lays her son on Elisha's bed. And then she immediately goes, 22, to to quickly take off to go find the man of God, Elisha. And when questioned by her husband and when questioned by Gehazi, what does she say to them? All is well. Even her husband doesn't even tell him what's going on. All is well. What? No, all's not well. What are you saying? She clearly doesn't want to talk to anyone but Elisha. I'm reminded of, and I've told you this before, dear friend, one of our elders back in Decatur who tragically lost his wife suddenly and while she was very young, I remember going over to his house the next morning and really all that he could say, and he said over and over again, God is good. How could he say it just as this woman could say it as well, all is well, She was a woman of faith who trusted in God, trusted whatever God was bringing to her, and somehow she seemed to even trust that God through his prophet Elijah, through the man of God, was going to do something incredible here. She Finally, she comes to Elijah in verse 27, and and what does Elisha say? He says, let let her alone. She's in bitter distress. And then do you see what else he said? The Lord has hidden it from me And has not told me. Elisha, the prophet, the man of God, he is just as surprised about this as she was. This was not Dick's story that he was expecting whenever her son was conceived and born. Yet you get the sense that Elisha knows that his God, Yahweh, is up to something. She says to him, verse 28, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? She has a point, doesn't she? In a way, this is exactly what I was afraid of. 
as she's saying these words, understand she's pleading before the man of God, God's prophet. She is ultimately pleading before God himself. Elisha's perplexed about this situation. He, he doesn't seem to know what to do. Verse 29, what does he say? He says, he tells his servant to what? Go, go, go lay the staff on the face of the child. Commentators are like, what? Nobody knows what in the world is going on here. It seems like maybe it's because Elisha doesn't know what's going on here. He doesn't know what to do with this situation. So he sends, so he sends his servant off running. Now, it seems that the woman isn't too impressed with Elisha's first suggestion, right? What does she say in verse 30? I, I will not leave you. I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying right here with you. I'm going to follow you. And kind of get his like, we're, we're going all the way back to the boy. We're, we're going all the way back to the room. I'm not leaving you until we get there. Of course, Elisha does get there. And he finds out that this first effect of, the, of laying the staff on the son is, is not effective. Verse 32, when Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. Now, if you didn't realize it yet, the miracles we have in the story, the first and the third one at least, in some ways, if you remember well from our sermon series, these are kind of sound like repeats from the ministry of Elijah, particularly in 1 Kings chapter 17, I believe, where Elijah performs similar miracles of multiplying oil and raising a son from the dead. Why do they show up in our passage? Part of it is what we've been talking about, but part of it's also to, to verify Elisha as God's replacement prophet for Elijah, that he has now been anointed as God's man, as the man of God that we see him called over and over in this passage. And so it shouldn't be a surprise that when Elisha enters the room, he does what Elijah did. What does he do? He prays. He prays and in praying, the prophet of God who didn't know what to do with this situation finds out what to do with this situation. Because he didn't know. He was out of his power. It was out of his strength. Just as when that widow came and didn't have anything, Elisha, as he's in that bedroom, he has nothing. And he goes to his great God. And so he does very similar to what Elijah did. He lays himself on top of the boy. He gets up, he does it again. And then, again, we don't know why, seven sneezes. But seven sneezes later, the boy is back to life. Calls the Shunammite woman to come. Verse 37, she came, she fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. She picked up her son and went out. That's the last we hear of this boy, whose name we don't know, and of this mom, again, of whose name we do not know. At this point, there can be no doubt that the Elisha that we've seen in the last three chapters of Second Kings is the new Elijah, the successor. He is the man of God. And as we put these things together, there can also be no doubt that Elisha's God Yahweh has been so incredibly kind to this woman. As we see these miracles, let's be reminded these miracles, they're, 
meant to point us to something greater. Miracles, when we see them in Scripture, they show up because there's like some inbreaking of the kingdom. And here it's taking place. Why? Because God's prophet is on the scene. We see something similar. Whenever Jesus heals the widow's son at Nain, what do the people say? A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. Why do they say that? Because Elijah and Elisha had come before. God's prophet is on the scene. It's a great sign, a great symbol, grabbing people by the shoulders. Do you understand the significance of what's going on here? And at the same time, it's testifying to those reading the words back then and to us reading today that God deeply cares for his people. And that so often he's an extravagant God. Doing extravagant things like multiplying oil, giving a barren woman a son, and raising a woman's son from the dead. These miracles, they're signs that point us to a much greater reality of of how deeply God cares for his people. And nowhere, nowhere do we see the extravagance of his love on greater display than we do in Jesus Christ. As he sends his son, his only son, the greatest picture of God caring and how much he cares for his people. Jesus comes on the scene. He comes on as a, a greater Elijah, Elisha. Not just erasing a woman's debts, not just raising a, a, a son from the dead, but he comes and he says to Martha, do you remember what he says to Martha before he raises Lazarus from the dead? He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? The greater Elisha has come. He's canceled our debt at the cross. He rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, and he says to you and I, This morning, do you believe? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? That question kept running through my mind as I was preparing the sermon, processing the death of some of the men of God in our denomination that have gone on to be with the Lord. In the midst of it, I was reminded how they believed. Believed that they We're confidently seated with Christ. We see that in some of Tim Keller's very last words. On Thursday, his son, Michael, also a pastor in our denomination, put out an update on his dad. He said, today, dad is being discharged from the hospital to receive hospice care at home. Over the past few days, he has asked us to pray with him often. He expressed many times through prayer his desire to go home to be with Jesus. His family is very sad because we all wanted more time. 
but we know he has very little at this point. In prayer two nights ago, he said, Tim Keller said, I'm thankful for all the people who've prayed for me over the years. I'm thankful for my family that loves me. I'm thankful for the time that God has given me, but I'm ready to see Jesus. I can't wait to see Jesus. Send me home. That's what he was praying. The next morning, Michael sent out another update. Timothy J. Keller, husband, father, grandfather, mentor, friend, pastor, and scholar died this morning at home. Dad waited until he was alone with mom. She kissed him on the forehead. He breathed his last breath. We take comfort in some of his very last words. There is no downside for me leaving. Not in the slightest. I can't wait to see Jesus. Send me home. As we think about our passage here this morning, this must have been amazing in these women's lives, right? Canceling of debt, raising a son. How life-changing that must have been for them. Do you, do you, do we, do I, do, do we really understand that something even greater than that has been done for us, for you, and I? That the one who is the resurrection and the life has come? That he has paid our debt at the cross and that he is risen? Do we really believe that? Do you really believe that Jesus came and that he has done that for you? I think Tim Keller was so convinced. So convinced that his Savior did that for him. So convinced that his Savior is risen. That is why he longed to be with him. And he now sees him face to face. Do you long to see Jesus? Now, maybe you struggle a bit with that. I think we all do, right? There's those moments where we're holding more tightly to the things of here and now. Maybe we can all pray that God would continue to grow our affections for our Savior. Grow to understand and know Him better. Grow to long to be with Him more and more. To more and more grow and understand and see that He, our union with Him, is the ultimate prize. Not the stuff, not the pearly gates, if you will, and the golden streets and what. No. But that we get to be with Him. If today you haven't put your faith in Him, maybe this is the moment and the time to respond. My prayer, my hope, is that we might all be able to say to Jesus' question, that question that he asked Martha, that we might all be able to respond and say, yes, I believe. Yes, I believe. Let's pray.
Father, we are reminded this morning of your extravagant and abundant love for your people, an extravagant love that shows up in the life of of a widow and a rich barren woman, but most significantly how your extravagant love has, has shown up through the sending of your one and only Son to pay our debt. Rising from the dead, conquering sin and death so that we too might long for that last day where we will rise too. Father, help us to believe. To believe more and more deeply, would you grow our affections for our Savior that we too would long more and more to be with Jesus. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.